0: positive message from from that is that our appetites still work we we haven't broken them they're still there they're still working and as david said if you put them in a healthy food environment you don't need to count calories or macros or any of this stuff no other animal in the history of the of of life on earth has ever had an app that helped it do that. It didn't need to, and nor do we if we put our appetites in an appropriate food environment.
1: It, it is important to mention that, um, as in so many things with evolution, there are trade-offs involved yes. so that a high-protein diet is, is good for reproduction, but what it does it comes at a cost of, of shortening the healthy lifespan. So what that implies is that when you ask yourself the question, well, what is a balanced diet, you have to ask yourself the second question of balanced for what.
2: Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Today I want to interrupt the show to highlight Thrive Market. Now, Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthy living accessible and affordable for as many people as possible. It's a fully online subscription-based grocery store, which provides a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or veteran in need for every single paid membership. Now, let me tell you why I think Thrive Market is really changing the game in the world of health-promoting foods. First of all, you can shop hand-picked brands from cosmetics to supplements to even frozen wild-caught fish, grass-fed beef, and a bunch of other household products, which are all shipped right to your door. And you might think to yourself, well, organic health food is so expensive. And I totally agree, but when you buy from Thrive Market, you actually save around 25 to 50% off the retail price that you'd find in a physical health food store near you. And the membership is incredibly affordable. It's really just about the price of a cup of coffee per month. And on average, the members make it back in savings after just two orders. It's also way easier than the grocery store. Uh, They make it so easy to shop. It's all online and ships right to your door and you can sort the entire catalog by non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed. Personally, my family has been ordering for Thrive Market for several years and we really can't recommend it enough. So if you wanna make eating healthier, not only more affordable, but convenient and delicious, try thrive market risk-free for a month using my link i get a commission but you also get a discount so it's a win-win and you'll get a gift of up to 24 dollars in value when you use the link and if you don't like it no worries you'll get a refund of your membership the link is in the description hope you give them a try now back to the show today I have with me the authors of Eat Like the Animals, What Nature Teaches Us About the Science of Healthy Eating. Professor David Robinheimer is a leading expert in nutritional ecology, which looks at how an animal's nutritional environment interacts with its biology to affect health and fitness. His studies of insects, fish, birds, and a variety of mammals have helped to develop a new approach to human nutrition-related problems, such as the dietary causes of obesity. Professor Stephen Simpson is an academic director of the Charles Perkins Center, a professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney, and executive director of Obesity Australia. Both of these leading scientists have developed an integrative approach for nutrition called the geometric framework, which was devised and tested using insects, but is now being applied to many other animals, including humans. And to go over their awards and honors might take the rest of the podcast. So I'll just end there. Thank you both very much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. All right.
2: So, to begin this whole series that I've had devised of, uh, you know, a bunch of different experts with conflicting opinions is is designed to answer the really difficult question of what are the foods that humans evolved to eat? So, in the book, you write, uh, and I quote, nothing about nutrition makes sense unless you understand the biological context in which in which the species evolved. So explain a little bit about what you mean here.
1: Do you want to take that, Steve, or should no, I? you
0: go, Dave, you go. <laughs> what, I'm,
1: what we mean by that is that evolutionary theory, what Darwin gave us was a framework for understanding not just what happens in terms of animal biology, but why it happens, why different species evolve different characteristics in nutrition and all sorts of other aspects of life um, in relation to specific requirements um, that are imposed on them by their environment. So you want to ask the question, well, the one that you're addressing, what did humans evolve to eat, Uh, then what you need to do in Darwinian theory is to go to the environment and look at the challenges that was posed by that environment and the adaptations that evolved in order to fit with that environment. And the same is true uh, of all other species. And there's a real advantage in studying a wide range of species as we have because then you can get a very you can develop a big picture of the relationships between uh, nutritional behavior and physiology and environmental requirements and interpret um,
0: human nutrition in the context of that big picture and that's um, that's very different from the conventional Um, dietetics human medical approach to nutrition and that's one of the things that we bring um, to the discussion and I think the insights that have emerged as David said from looking comparatively across different species and asking the question how have different species solved essentially the same problem the problem of achieving a nutritionally balanced diet which is a non-trivial problem. It's an incredibly complex thing um, ultimately to do. You need to balance your intake and utilization of dozens of different micro and macronutrients, doing that within a food environment where your foods may be dangerous to acquire, time-consuming to acquire, variable in space and time and in their composition, protected um, chemically in the case of many plants against being eaten and so on and so forth. So it's a really challenging problem. The probably biggest problem that all organisms have faced since the origins of um, animal life. And by looking at how different species have done it in their different environments, we've come to the conclusion that you cannot understand the nutritional biology of an organism Either when it's going right or when it's going wrong, unless you understand that historical relationship with diet and environment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned that, you know, the way that an, an organism, I guess, kind of responds to to a changing environment um, is, is a challenge because it needs to fulfill its nutritional needs. Um, what I guess it might be a really difficult question because humans. Kind of went all over the place we kind of colonized the globe so we faced kind of different challenges but if you could make some sort of you know overarching generalization maybe about some of the problems humans face nutritionally what would that what would that look like
1: Well, you've said it yourself. The challenge that humans faced in our evolution was diversity and variation. So as a species, we were selected and adapted to cope with a very wide range of ecological and dietary circumstances. Um, You still see that variation um, in study the molecular genetics of um, African populations, where at least half of our evolution was in Africa. There's immense genetic variation and a map very well onto um, ecological variation which relates to diet and also linguistic variation which relates to to the culture that has developed together with that genetic evolution adapting different populations to different different environments in, in Africa. And then, of course, it became even more variable with um, humans leaving Africa and and colonising temperate regions in in Europe and so forth. So generalism is the characteristic, I think, that most clearly defines human
0: diet and nutrition. Yes, we're the the cockroach of the primates in many ways. Um, We've evolved across a range of diverse diets, And our generalism and our capacity to do that has been a hallmark of the success, a a precursor to the success of the species. But that
1: doesn't necessarily mean that um, we are as a species in general, well adapted to a wide range of nutrient intakes. What we're well adapted to is a wide range of different foods, being able to utilize a wide range of different foods in order to achieve the nutrient intakes that our bodies require. And and those nutrient intakes aren't nearly as variable. Those requirements aren't nearly as variable as the foods that we use to satisfy them.
2: Right, right. Yeah, that's a that's, I guess, a major theme that I gleaned from from the book. And uh, I had a previous podcast guest who was also part of this series, um, Dr. Mickey Bendor, and he said that one of the most straightforward ways to determine the foods that humans evolved to eat is to look at the modern physiology, because we have some, you know, things built into us that can tell us things about the past, of course, um, which is what I think partially you've done with your book. And so I want to go to the um, Oxford Locust Experiment and kind of start there. So you you begin part of the book with the Oxford Locust Experiment, and you find, quote, when locusts have a good choice of available foods, their appetite systems collaborate, and the insects combine the foods in exactly the right proportions to consume an optimally balanced diet. But when they're restricted to imbalanced foods, the appetites for protein and carbohydrate compete. For locusts, in the end, protein always wins end quote. So tell me a little bit about the broader implications of this finding.
0: Well, the the implications are several fold. Um, Those experiments showed to us that, firstly, locusts don't have just a single hunger. They're not hungry or full. They have appetites that are specific to different nutrients. Um, And that is... That's a really important um, um, insight, I think, or breakthrough at the time because it allowed us then, and we talk about this in the book, to ask that question of other organisms. If locusts have specific appetites for protein, for carbohydrate, for salt, they're the three that we discovered early on in in locusts. What about other species? And the answer to that question was yes, they're universal there's a small number of specific nutrient appetites that are possessed of all animals. So pretty well anything we've looked at from slime molds to people, um, that's true. The second really significant um, finding um, or insight that emerged from that experiment was that uh, the appetites for different nutrients when they're forced to compete with one another, there's an order of priority in Their access to our hunger systems and to our feeding control systems. And in the locust, protein was the dominant nutrient. The appetite for protein was the thing that the the animal, if you like, cared most about. So it would be willing to extend its development, end up um, obese to get enough protein on a low protein, high carb diet. Um, it would consume more calories than it needed to attain that and then uh, in the end end up fat and extending its development likewise if you put it onto a higher than optimal protein diet uh, with low carbs it would eat less it would become very lean but um, it would suffer consequences of that as well so um, the protein appetite system dominated in imbalanced environments now we went on, of course, to show that that same principle applies um, to many other species—not all—but other species too show a dominant protein appetite. Um, we humans, among them. Did no, i you just off? saying that. A- The one, as Steve said, the
1: one really key insight was this um, nutrient-specific appetites, the discovery of nutrient-specific appetites and how they interact to help an animal compose a balanced diet. Um, and and a very important issue in the evolution of humans or any animal is because those appetites are what sit between the animal's physiology and the consequences of what it eats and the ecology that it uses to exploit nutrients. Um, that's the evolution of those nutrient-specific appetites is critically important for understanding animal nutrition. You can understand why they've evolved, because animals require many nutrients, and each of those appetites is the animal's body's way of telling its brain what its specific nutrient requirement is at a particular time. Really important um, uh, insight, which actually underpins the rest of what we've done and and what we we write about in in the book, including
0: human nutrition and its um, problems in modern environments. It's led us um, deep into the mechanism of appetite, so into the brain, um, into the physiological control of appetite systems, including the protein appetite. But more than that, it's, it's also led us to start to understand some really deep and important things about the way in which our appetite systems have gone awry in the modern industrialized food environment right so if i'm understanding correctly in an environment
2: that is protein poor uh, these animals and and humans as well there's the swiss uh, chalet study that you you also did from the book Um, it seems that humans tend to kind of try to compensate for the lack of protein by eating more of the carbs and fats and so by doing that there's an overabundance of, of energy there's an excess in calories and so that kind of tends to lead towards obesity
0: right right that's what we call the protein leverage effect um, and um, it's its involvement in the obesity epidemic we originally called the protein leverage hypothesis um, for which now there's substantial evidence emerged in recent years from a whole range of different sources. I want to get into that because
2: it would seem, you know, just from the beginning of the book, it would seem, oh, protein's the answer. We should just eat a ton of protein and that's it, right? Um, but no, there's a sort of bi directional um, kind of link there uh, with protein and health. So I, I want to get into that a little bit more. Um, you first start to mention as one of the possible consequences of having too much protein, um, methionine, and longevity. Um, So kind of walk me through that briefly.
0: Well, if we take a step back, if, if, as we found, animals care about eating either too little or too much protein, both of them um, are avoided and hence they regulate to a a particular what we call target intake of protein. That implies that not only are there costs to eating too little protein, and they're pretty obvious, you need protein to get nitrogen to grow, to reproduce, to maintain your tissues, but it also implies there's a cost to eating too much. Um, And as evolutionary biologists, um, we were interested to try and understand what those costs might be Um, and initially we we were working with flies and then mice and then starting to extend the observations more broadly across human population data and there really is an indication that excess protein intake and higher proportions of protein than at the target in diets universally across organisms from yeasts to monkeys um, are associated with uh, rapid aging um, elevated risk in midlife and early late life of a whole range of cardiometabolic and other diseases so and the mechanisms of that are now being unpacked in in real detail by a series of groups including our own across the world now that begs the question what is it about protein that's causing the problem and The obvious first um, hypothesis to test is it's something to do with the ratio of amino acids within proteins, because proteins, as we all know, are made up of 20 common amino acids. Nine or so are essential to us. We can't manufacture them ourselves. We need them in our food and our diet. And those amino acids can come in an endless variety of ratios And what's been discovered is that if you get the balance of those wrong, then you can either speed up or slow down the impacts of excess protein on aging and mid-late life or early late life cardiometabolic health. Now, some of the key amino acids involved, uh, methionine and the sulfur amino acids are among them. The branch chain amino acids are also among them. Um, and the question of what's the optimal balance of those 20 amino acids and which of the foods that provide them or food combinations is, is an active and very exciting question at the moment in, in the study of nutritional science. It, it is important to mention
1: that, um, as in so many things with evolution, there are trade-offs involved yes. so that... The data indicates that a high protein diet is is good for reproduction, for preparing the bodily machinery to reproduce. But what it does, it comes at a cost of, of shortening the healthy lifespan. So what that implies is that when you ask yourself the question, well, what is a balanced diet? You have to ask yourself the second question of balanced for what? A diet that is well balanced for reproduction and success early in life, might well, and in fact does, the evidence tells us, come at a cost in terms of late-life health and longevity.
0: And it it also begs another really important question, which is, um, what's the difference between a therapeutic diet and a healthy population diet? And this brings up some of the real complexities that arise around um, the high-protein, low-carb, diet versus the healthy populations of humans across the planet who have high carbohydrate healthy carbohydrate low protein diets how do we reconcile those things the answer is actually quite simple Um, a high protein lower carb or indeed low fat and carb diet will limit energy intake because of protein leverage We, we understand the mechanism of that that will lead to weight loss and will also help redress um, metabolic um, dysregulation. Um, Type 2 diabetes and so on can be improved with such a diet. Um, But the benefits of of weight loss and, and helping metabolic health will in that case outweigh the costs associated, which are longer term costs in terms of accelerated rates of aging and so on. Um, But it's that cost, um, that that benefit-cost ratio that needs to be considered. So short-term use of a therapeutic diet to reset metabolism makes a great deal of sense because the costs that you're paying are trivial in comparison to the benefits. That's not the same thing as saying when you're a healthy, um, healthy weight, healthy metabolically, that maintaining yourself on such a diet is the right thing to do um, so it's it just requires a little bit of nuance and a break away from the zealotry that tends to accompany some of the the the, the dietary fads are at the moment and create a great deal of heat and not a lot of light yes yes and, and related to
1: that is the evolutionary question where Um, Another very prominent part of this fad diet debate is um, what were the protein levels in the evolutionary human diet? Now, now that's an interesting debate. It's complex because as we've already said, there's great variation in human populations through space and time. But in some respects, it's irrelevant. And the reason that it's irrelevant, one of the reasons is that, um, as I said earlier on, a different protein levels optimize different outcomes. So a high protein diet would have been better suited to optimizing the outcome that was relevant to evolving paleolithic humans, which is reproductive success, reproduce before the very high chance of dying of infection or of, of accident, which was a big issue in those times, before you diet reproduce. So high protein diets were important then. And, and the cost in terms of reduced longevity uh, wouldn't be nearly as high for the reason that you stood a high chance of dying prematurely in any case. But in modern human populations, we've got to ask ourselves, do we really want to eat a diet that enables us to, um, to have 10 children? Or do we want to eat a diet that enables us to live a long and healthy life? And the optimal diet for those two outcomes is very different.
2: Yeah, I I think for for some of the the listeners and the viewers who aren't really sure, like methionine, what does that have to do with, you know, um, like protein sources from, you know, animal protein sources or plant-based protein sources? And My understanding is that animal-based protein sources have more methionine. Um, but typically like things like a chickpea for example would have lower amounts of the methionine so would that be correct to say
0: yeah look the the animal and plant-based proteins do tend to differ in their amino acid um, balance that's certainly true so the branch chain amino acids methionine sulfur amino acids are um, in are more abundant in some animal than in some plant proteins I think the other the other important thing um, indicator is that plant-based proteins tend to be more variable in their amino acid composition than animal-based proteins and that requires that you need to eat a variety of plant-based proteins to gain a balance of amino acids Um, and it's easier eating animal-based proteins to get that balance but um, that doesn't mean plant or animal-based Um, proteins per se are better than one another it's just that they're different Um, but the population level data does suggest that plant uh, a a diet high in plant-based proteins um, has healthier outcomes on average um, than one high in particularly processed animal-based proteins I I don't think there's much controversy about that anymore Um, but the the key is that the balance of amino acids requires, to get that balance, you require a, a variety of different um, protein sources in your, in your diet to really achieve it. Bearing in mind, too, that your requirements change as you go through your life um, with development, they also change with the status of your immune system, whether you're um, subject to infection, um, whether you're reproducing, whether you're um, um, exercising heavily, undergoing um, anabolic processes or catabolic processes as you age. So it, it moves. It varies. Requirements change over time. And, and we often try and fit um, a one-size-fits-all um, fits diet to the entire life course, and we need to be probably a little bit more nuanced in understanding how nutritional requirements change according to circumstance and development and so on.
1: And that's one of the really important reasons that animals and humans alike have evolved nutrient-specific appetites, because it enables them to track those changes over short time frames, to eat more energy, more fat, carbohydrate when they need it, eat more protein when they need it, and to balance the diet according to their specific requirements at a given time.
0: So we've done some, uh, I think, extraordinarily interesting experiments over the years, for example, infecting caterpillars with a a lethal virus, uh, which is actually used to control pest caterpillar populations. And we found that if you infect a caterpillar with this particular virus, it will shift its diet to increase its protein intake and having done that it stands a better chance of withstanding the infection not dying Um, and if you confine the caterpillar to a diet where it can't do that then you can show that when infected they need more protein to survive than when they're uninfected Um, there are many other examples There's, there's some beautiful work done in fruit flies showing that when the male inseminates the female, he introduces a little peptide, a small protein molecule called the sex peptide, which acts in her brain to turn on her protein appetite. So she then starts to select protein rich foods to support the development of her eggs. So the, the, the biological systems that underpin these responses are really remarkable and uh, we document some of that in the book of course
1: These aren't just things that happen in the artificial circumstances of laboratory experiments. So we've shown, for example, that um, rhesus macaques and a lot of primates do this when they're lactating, highly energetic, demanding time of the life cycle, they increase their intake of energy and nutrients by the equivalent amount. Um, We've shown in monkeys in China living in a temperate environment that, In the winter when it's very cold they increase specifically fat and carbohydrate intake to match the additional energetic costs of keeping warm through the cold winters protein intake stays the same but specifically the fat and carbohydrate appetites track that increased energetic requirement um, so it happens both in the lab where we can control all of the circumstances of the experiment and we can establish causality. We know what's causing what and it happens in the wild where there's relevance. It's relevant to, to animals in their daily lives and the ecologies where they evolved.
2: There are a few arguments uh, against, you know, the idea that plant proteins are superior to animal proteins and a few that come to mind right now are that... Uh, in order to form a complete protein of the nine essential amino acids, you would need to generally have higher calories and higher carbohydrate amount, which some people view as bad. Some people don't. Um, But my question would be, would this, you know, having a little bit more calories when trying to form a complete protein, would that counteract, you know, the low methionine that you'd get from avoiding the animals?
0: Um, it, it, depends entirely on the nature of the carbohydrates um, and most whole food plant-based whole foods are are not high in the sorts of calories that we know are causing the principal problems when it comes to obesity and all the associated comorbidities and they're of course the uh, the ultra processed foods the highly industrially processed foods. Um, Most plant-based carbohydrates in in whole foods are tough to digest. So they're resistant to digestion, um, if digestible by us at all. And they, of course, play important roles in feeding our microbiome and maintaining its diversity and its uh, functional integrity. And that, in turn, is a key part of our Appetite control systems, our immune function is trained through that community of bugs, and everything else about our health is intimately related, it seems, to those communities of microorganisms. So it's hard to find an argument that would say that high plant based diets, whole food plant based diets, um, even if they're involving extra calorie consumption are problematic to health. I don't think any of the population level data would indicate that, but the, these are all around the margins. It seems to me in, in the discussion about the human global challenges around obesity and metabolic disease, the smoking gun there as we develop the argument very clearly in the book is this, entire industry of ultra processed foods um, now if you want to balance your protein intake you can do it through selecting multiple different plant-based proteins you don't need to think about it other than maintain a variety of plant-based proteins in your diet your, your appetite control systems will do the rest
1: and as you say the epidemiological evidence supports that um, the circumstances in which we see protein leverage um, that is overeating um, energy and particularly carbs your know, carbs and fats are those, as Steve said, in which um, the food system um, has a lot of ultra processed foods. If you look at um, even largely plant-based dietary patterns in traditional um, populations, you don't see obesity at all. Uh, the Okinawan, Japanese Okinawan, traditional Okinawans, uh, many of the forest hunter-gatherers, um, the Kitavan Islanders, um, low protein, high plant content in the diet, and um, they're lean and healthy and long-lived.
2: What about the argument that, uh, you know, animal proteins are more bioavailable and they're, you know, they're one of the most nutrient dense foods, something like organ meats, for example, ranks like one of the highest foods in terms of nutrient density, which would, in a sense, allow you to eat less food and still have the the essential micronutrients. Well,
0: there's a couple of things there. You you wouldn't want to eat an entirely organ meat based diet. I think organ meat um, is, is... is a you know fabulous source of micro, some of the micronutrients um, and and protein and and other things. Not a good source of uh, bulk and fiber and and some healthy carbohydrates or or some of the healthy fats actually. So it's uh, it, organ meats per se are a healthy food. Um, but you wouldn't eat an entire organ meat diet, or at least that would be challenging. Right. To... right. So I think it's uh, it's a matter of keeping that sort of relationship. Of what, what are healthy foods? What combinations of foods construct healthy diets? And there are innumerable combinations and different cultures around the world Um, have traditions and food cultures that that have achieved that outcome in very different ways and extraordinarily interesting and delicious ways, Um, but as David said initially, we all end up eating a remarkably similar macronutrient and micronutrient intake, irrespective of population. The the, the boundaries, the range in in those um, values are really quite small. The way that we do it is, is Is is, is as variable as food cultures,
1: and but those populations that are um, that are exceptions, like the traditional Inuit diet or the Maasai diet, um, they have specific genetic adaptations that are associated with those unusual diets. So they're not representative of, of humans in general. They are outliers. And as do all animals, uh, all species, they've adapted to that specific unusual um, uh, food environment in which they evolved.
0: Which may in turn have made them more susceptible to um, health, poor health outcomes on a modern Western industrialized food um, diet. And the reason for that being that if you're you know, we talk about targets and moving targets, your nutrient requirements change throughout the life course. They they also change over evolutionary time. And they they do so to track the environment, the food environment with, within which the animal is evolving, not just has evolved, but is evolving. And if you've evolved in a high protein, low carbohydrate environment. Um, you will have evolved adaptations to to manage the problems of that food environment. So we think, for example, that oceanic populations, populations like the Inuit and some of the traditional populations who are hunter-gatherer-based may have higher protein targets genetically, um, and the higher your target, the greater you are of having to over or the greater risk you are of overconsumption of energy in a low protein junk food environment, because you've got to eat more to get to your higher protein target.
2: Right, that's something I wanted to ask you about the protein target. How is it that you can change, you know, the protein target?
0: Um, Well, the protein target changes throughout the life course anyway, so it starts off actually very low as a proportion of your dietary energy. So breast milk is only 7% protein, very high in fat and carbs, but that's the optimum diet for a human infant. Um, throughout the rest of your life course, the proportions change. They go typically from 15% to a little higher, 20% during for example, pregnancy or in, in, in late life, where you become less efficient at using protein. Um, so there are changes that will occur throughout development as a, as a natural part of the developmental process across the life course. But on top of that, you can have other changes imposed by your health and lifestyle. So the protein target goes up if you become insulin resistant. And we think that will trigger a vicious cycle. The higher your protein target, the more you've got to eat to get to it in a junk food world, which means it'll go up even further and you've got to chase that um, rising target. The reason for that is that insulin normally inhibits your breaking down protein. So either lean protein in your muscles and bones or protein that um, you have in circulation in the form of amino acids, you normally wouldn't burn those to produce glucose. But if you've got enough carbohydrate in your diet, you you don't burn protein, but insulin is what normally inhibits that. So if you become resistant to insulin, you start to burn your own protein. That means, and, and, and break it down, and that means you're ultimately going to have to eat more protein to reach your um, increased target. And the higher the target, the more you're going to overconsume calories in a junk food world. So o- obesity and insulin resistance can increase the protein targets. And that will put you at greater risk of um, further obesity, because you have to eat more in a junk food world to, to reach your higher target. And we think that's what's caused the obesity epidemic to continue to accelerate over decades rather than plateau Um, and if you think about it if it was simply we've eaten too much junk and that's made us um, fat then that should have plateaued as a global phenomenon of increased body weight and the reason for that being that the bigger you are the more calories you need so if you're induced to overconsume calories um, by being placed in a a junk food world, you'd get bigger, you'd require those extra calories to stay bigger and you would plateau in in your weight uh, and the global population would have stabilized in terms of its um, obesity. But that hasn't happened, it's continued to grow and it needs therefore a, a vicious cycle, something that can drive it in a positive feedback and we think that's what it is increasing protein target driven by the consequences of increased um, body fat, particularly visceral body fat, which is, of course, insulin resistance and all the associated um, comorbidities. Got it. That makes we also sense.
1: Think, we also think that the well-established correlation between human infants being formula-fed Um, milk formula fed and obesity later in life is related to the same thing because typically formula milk formula has a higher protein content, content than human breast milk. Well, that is changing now, but at least historically until very recently it did and some still do. And we think that what's happening is that the relatively high protein diet of human infants conditions the body to reduce protein efficiency and what that means, the reduced efficiency increases the intake requirement for protein later in life, and that drives um, uh, uh, obesity through protein leverage.
2: I want to shift gears a little bit. I know we're coming up on the edge of time here uh, towards your mega mouse study that you had. It's titled The Ratio of Macronutrients, Not Caloric Intake, Dictates Cardiometabolic Health, Aging and Longevity in Ad Libitum fed Mice. And I came across a few critiques which I wanted you to address, and one of them was that uh, several of the mice um, of the, on the low-protein diet were euthanized due to weight loss, among several other reasons, and that the high-protein mice ate about 60% of their calories from protein, which is a very, very high amount, and the critique here is that uh, this can't be used to say that humans should eat less protein for longevity. How do you respond to that?
0: Uh, yeah there's some remarkably ill-informed criticisms of that experiment which totally fail to understand the design and the results so so that's the first thing to say um, yes there were we set up the experiment with initially 30 different diets that um, they they were um, systematically varied in their protein fat and carbohydrate content The experiment involved placing um, a large number of mice on one of these 30 diets at weaning, so right at the beginning of life. And the aim of the experiment was to look at late life health and longevity and patterns of aging, which um, relates to what we were saying earlier. Um, When we had the protein content below 5%, um and the energy density of the diet, which was the other manipulated variable, um, low um, in combination with that, the mice as very young mice just didn't grow. So what we'd just simply shown there is we'd exceeded their capacity to utilize those foods for growth. And so those animals had to be removed from the experiment. That was, uh, according to the ethics protocol that you sign up to when you actually begin an experiment, so that there's there's absolutely nothing interesting about that except that mice can't grow on a less than five, on a five percent low energy diet, nor can we actually. Um, then the patterns that we saw across our remaining 25 diets, which were varied systematically in protein, fat and carbohydrate, the models that we fit to those um, large number of points derived from this large number of animals, more than 700 animals, um, you fit surface responses and those surface responses are robust to taking out the extreme high protein diets. If you remove them, you get the same pattern Um, and they're incredibly robust. Um, So the the conclusions from that paper are absolutely watertight and have been replicated by us and by numerous other labs around the world many times since. Um, It changed the paradigm in our understanding of the relationship between nutrients nutrient balance calorie intake uh longevity and late life health so so that's the first thing um every single criticism that we've seen and there are a couple of really strident ones are ludicrous um statistically wrong and naive and um driven by um a zealotry which is sadly part of the nature of the fad diet community people have ideological attachment to their beliefs and anything that doesn't fit them needs to be attacked and that's kind of regrettable but um, anyway those those results are absolutely robust the one interesting thing that um, emerged out of the analysis was that When you put an animal on a diet of fixed composition for its entire life, you prevent it from being able to track its own changing requirements throughout life, as we spoke about earlier. So what we subsequently did was take the same data from that experiment and analyze the age-specific mortality as animals develop throughout their lifespan. And what that showed was um, that was a more sophisticated, we had to develop the techniques to do that. And that publication, which came out in 2019, has a really, I think, very interesting take on those same data. And it shows convincingly that a um, low-protein, higher-carbohydrate diet particularly, supported healthiest midlife, A higher protein diet was necessary earlier in life for reproduction, and that we published those data as well. Then when you get to late life, the mice that survived to that period on a high protein diet, and there were fewer of them compared to a low protein diet, if they did survive into late life, then they did better on a high protein diet. And that reflects, as we were saying earlier, the needs for aged organisms humans or mice um, to have to increase their protein intake in in their very late life, because they start to burn their own protein as part of the aging process, so it was a very important study. Um, it's been replicated it's absolutely solid and has given rise to a a great deal of new insight into the underlying mechanisms of biology and disease across the life course.
1: It's also important to stress that those criticisms are not criticisms that come from scientists in the scientific literature. These are criticisms that are out there in the public domain that are associated I think exclusively with people who not Um, don't believe the evidence, but don't want to believe the implications of what that experiment tells us in terms of the composition of diets.
2: Right. Yeah. As always, nutrition, the world of nutrition is just so ridiculously dogmatic. Um, And so, yeah, my reason for bringing that up is just kind of seeing, you know, how true is that actually? Um, Because you never know.
0: Yeah. No, look, you, you, you can tell that we've got kind of frustrated by uh, there's only there's only quite literally one or two people who have this sort of deranged view and they're they're pushing it in a way that is um is sort of laughable actually um, it's been it's been quite entertaining at one level to watch how people can distort um <laughs> distort things despite the uh, the the evidence to to fit whatever their preconception happens to be. Yeah, yeah. We,
1: we're used to That's seeing so it in politics, but it's it's a sad um, it's a sad turn of events that we see it in one of the most important issues in our lives, which is is diet. Oh yeah, because it really results in misinformation, and and that translates into into poor public health. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I
2: don't think you guys are suggesting just eat low protein, nor are you suggesting eat high protein. What I'm hearing, which is fascinating result, by the way, is it, there's trade-offs to everything, right? And so having more protein when you're developing, but not necessarily when you were first born, right? You said that that wasn't so good to have high protein at that point, but it changes throughout the life cycle and maybe midlife, yeah, it might be better for you to not have as much protein. And then as you grow older, like you mentioned, that might be a better time for you to slightly increase your protein intake.
0: Totally right. Absolutely. It's all about balance and, and nuance. And the other, there's another really important Um, aspect that we we have also studied in great detail. And that is that the quality of your carbs and fat and protein matters a lot. So we've already spoken about amino acid balance. We we published last year a a really important paper. Again, it was a, a mouse paper, but really, I think, an important one showing that the benefits of a low protein, high carbohydrate diet during midlife in a mouse are entirely dependent on the nature of the carbohydrate Um, and we found that the very best outcomes were if there was a lot of resistant starch in that carbohydrate and the worst outcomes completely countermanding the benefits of low protein came when you coupled low protein with high fructose corn syrup as the principal um, dietary carbohydrate So that is very telling because, of course, the principal sweetener added, um, particularly in the U.S., to processed foods is high fructose corn syrup, which is a one to one or near enough ratio of pure glucose and pure fructose. Um, Interestingly, that was worse than even having sucrose, which is the same to um, monosaccharides as a disaccharide Um, that had less bad outcomes than having them separated as you do in high fructose corn syrup so the type of carbs the ratio with respect to protein the balance of amino acids in those proteins these are all really important things as well I mean, all of this sounds complex and
1: it is complex. Nutrition is immensely complex. That's part of the problem. But just because the challenges are complex, it doesn't mean the solution needs to be complex. And what everything we've done points to is that there's a very simple solution to this, and that is avoid processed foods, avoid foods, highly processed foods, foods that are manufactured. In factories rather than grown in fields and subsequently minimally processed in various ways. That's not an issue. Because when foods are manufactured, the sort of intrinsic correlations between nutrients that our bodies have evolved to thrive on are broken down and new correlations are created, not in the interests of our health, but in the interests of commercial success. So what our work tells us overall is that if you if we surround ourselves with real foods, we place ourselves in a, a real food environment, we can let our biology do the rest. That's what it's evolved to do. That's what it does in all species. That's what it did for most of our evolutionary history. We didn't have these problems. That's a simple solution. It's a one-head solution,
0: reduce the intake really, of processed really. foods positive message from from that is that our appetites still work we we haven't broken them they're still there they're still working and as david said if you put them in a healthy food environment you don't need to count calories or macros or any of this stuff um no other animal in the history of the of of life on earth has ever had an app that helped it do that it didn't need to and nor do we Um, if we put our appetites in an appropriate food environment.
2: Amazing, thank you both so much for your time. Uh, before we go, where can people find out more about both of you?
0: Well, I guess read the book would be would be a good place to start. Um, and the, the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney um, is where we both work and it's a place that we've built from scratch to tackle exactly these sorts of challenges um, which involves everything from philosophers and historians and sociologists through to basic metabolic scientists evolutionary biologists. uh, creative writers and more so it's an extraordinary place, and you can find more about that on online and you'll see us there and um, we're always happy to entertain questions.
2: All right. Thank you both very much for your time. I appreciate it. It's
1: a pleasure. Thanks, bye-bye.
2: Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, Books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.